Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. There are so many ways to heal the world, and today's Spirit in Action guest is doing it through one of my favorite ways, through what we eat. Dr. Nicole Avena didn't start out to specialize in her concern for how added sugar is affecting our well-being, but was led there by the data. Nicole is an assistant professor of neuroscience at Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York City, and she's also a visiting professor in health psychology at Princeton University. The latest of her five books is Sugarless, a seven-step plan to uncover hidden sugars, curb your cravings, and conquer your addiction. Drawing on a mix of her training and research in both psychology and neuroscience to address one of the most consequential lifestyle issues in America. In the book, she frames the issue, overviews the research for the layperson, looks at the addiction and other psychological factors involved, and gets practical with a bunch of recipes that make breaking out of the mainstream intake of added sugars both fun and tasty. Dr. Nicole Avena joins us today from New Jersey via Zoom. Nicole, it's wonderful to have you here today for Spirit in Action. Oh, thanks so much for inviting me. And I was asking you before we got on, how were the holidays for you? I mean, normally that's a time when people load up on their sugar, and I'm betting you didn't. No, we definitely do not do that in my home. Um, We're, you know, mindful. We enjoy the holidays and we enjoy food and cooking and have a sweet treat here or there, but certainly not to the extent that I think the majority of people do. We, We try to avoid the overindulgence part of it. Does that extend to general parameters for how you eat? Is it only sugar or is it really a wider view on what goes into one's body? Well, you know, it's interesting. I have come into this whole area via my research, via, you know, being a professor and doing academic research for many years on how sugar affects the brain. And so I didn't have a particular interest in nutrition at first, but over the years of doing this work, I mean, it's really just been eye-opening in terms of understanding how what we eat has a significant impact on our health and how we feel. And so, you know, it is a large portion about sugar, but I also think, you know, it comes down to other things. It comes down to avoiding processed foods. It comes down to, you know, really being mindful about the types of foods that we purchase, the types of foods that we prepare, the types of foods that we order if we go out to a restaurant and understanding that everything that you eat has an effect on your health and it's either going to be a good effect or a bad effect and we want to hopefully front load it to be positive effects. And you said you didn't come in with any predilection in terms of diet or food. How were you raised dietarily? You know, I probably should have had some issues, but I fortunately did not. So I was raised as a child of the 70s and 80s, typical family life. I'm a first generation college student. So, you know, my parents were working class and I would say they didn't have much knowledge about healthy eating. And so we had soda, we had candy, you know, we had chips and all those things in the home. And I guess for me, it didn't become an issue. And, you know, I think that growing up and now kind of seeing, wow, you know, it really could have been an issue because what we ate wasn't really a focus and there wasn't really much of an emphasis 
from my upbringing, at least on eating healthy foods. Now, if I flash forward to me being the parent and having little kids at home, I think it's a different story. I think that we have a lot more awareness now around the importance of eating healthy and good food. And also we know that all these processed foods, all this added sugar can really be detrimental to our health. And I think that's where, you know, we start to see a lot of the changes that come into play in modern times. I was a typical Midwest eater until I was 21. You know, meat, potato, maybe a little vegetable. Sure, you want to get your cake and your jello and all that kind of stuff in. At 21, I became a vegetarian and I joined a food co-op right away. I went cold turkey. Quite literally on a Saturday, I decided I'll try and change my diet somehow. What should I do? Well, I'll try being a vegetarian. And it's been a lifelong thing for me. But one of the things is that being in a food co-op, being aware of whole foods, being aware of alternatives to the way that the mainstream was going in the 1970s, I was kind of stepped out of some of that flood of prepared foods that are part of what's the norm for America, right? You were raised, though, with those foods. Was it hard to give them up? Did you have to go through the removal of addiction that you are training people to do through your work? I don't think it was difficult for me, but I also think that when I was growing up in the 80s, the pervasiveness of the processed foods wasn't as apparent as it is now. And so, you know, yeah, we had cereal, we had soda in the house, but I also had my grandmother living with us cooking delicious dinners and, you know, teaching me how to cook. And so I had a balance that I think is something that not too many children are fortunate enough to have these days because what we're seeing is that, you know, the processed foods have basically dominated our food supply. And unless you are really putting in a concerted effort, it's very unlikely that you're avoiding all of those processed foods and avoiding all the added sugar that comes along with most of those processed foods. Your official name that people should know so they can get to your website is Dr. Nicole Avina. If people have any trouble spelling that, come via northernspiritradio.org. It's pretty much as it sounds, but people might leave out a letter or change one of them there. Your title is PhD, and I think your PhD is in psychology or maybe it's neuroscience. Could you explain a little bit about the level of your expertise and what it's specialized in? Yes. So I have a PhD in psychology and neuroscience. I went to Princeton and my training really began there in the psychology and neuroscience program. From there, I went on to do my postdoctoral training at a university in New York City called Rockefeller University. It's a biomedical institute that is very heavily research-based. That was, for me, very educational in the sense that I was able to learn a lot of new skills. I was able to focus on molecular biology and really just add to my understanding of how food affects the brain. And I picked up quite a few different new skills and, and techniques that I could use in the laboratory for my research. From there, I went on to become an assistant professor, an associate professor now at Mount Sinai Medical School in New York City. And I also have a visiting appointment at Princeton where I teach health psychology every spring. And that's been going on for about 10 years now. 
And so I have really had, I believe to be a, a fortunate, blessed career. I've been lucky to have wonderful colleagues who've been very supportive over the years and have helped me to do lots of really fun and interesting studies. And, you know, now one of the things that I've been focusing on is talking about those studies and, and helping people to understand the research that's out there so that we can use it to make better decisions about our health. I think that's one of the big, I guess, missteps in our communication of science is that scientists do all these really exciting studies and then they publish them in these journals that nobody reads except the other scientists. <laughs> And it's really unfortunate because the way that the journal articles are written, you have to be a scientist to understand them because they're extremely technical and they're not very friendly for the everyday person who isn't a scientist. And so I've been interested over you know the past several years in helping to translate the science and helping people to understand what's going on. What do we know about food and how it affects our health and our brain and helping people to really just be able to use that science to make changes to better their health. And through that, one of the things that, you know, I've been doing is writing books about it and telling people about the research so that they can be more informed. I'm going to guess that your book, uh, What to Eat When You're Pregnant and What to Feed Your Baby and Toddler, I'm guessing that you maybe wrote them something like, let's say, 13 years ago. I didn't look at the date, but I happen to know you have a teenage daughter and eight-year-old son. And so I'm thinking that having the baby, you, you were asking yourself the question, what am I going to feed them? Yeah, you're very correct. I got interested in early life nutrition in part because in our lab, we were studying how sugar affects the brain. And we were finding all these really interesting results that were suggesting that sugar can be addictive and it could cause changes in the brain that were like what you'd see with drugs or alcohol. We then got interested in the genesis of it. You know, when does it begin? And so we conducted some research on pregnancy and looking at early life exposure, exposure in the womb to sugar and seeing what effect it would have on the outcomes for the babies. At the time, I was also pregnant myself. And, you know, I started to think that I got this. I, I'll be fine. I know what to eat. I, you know, study nutrition for a living. And I was just shocked at the lack of information that was out there for pregnancy and healthy eating. And it was also negative and don't eat this, don't eat that. This is toxic, you know, and it didn't really capitalize on what we did know that could promote health about nutrition and promote fetal development, promote baby development. And so that's what inspired me to write that book kind of went on from there. I mean, as you go through life phases, I guess your interests change. I think when you have your own children and you think you got it all figured out and then you wake up and you're like, oh, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> you know, you realize that a lot of people probably feel that same way. And so that's how those books came to be. I'm kind of wondering if sugarless is an end point that you're at. Did you come to this point 20 years ago when you were originally doing your research? Or is it something you've come to more as a conclusion? You know, that's a really great question. I'm not sure what the answer is to that. I, You can ask my husband, every time I write a book, and this is my fifth book now, I say after I hand it into the editor at the publishing house, you know, I'm never writing a book again. That's the last <laughs> book I'm ever writing. 
And he was remarking, you know, we had a, a launch party for my new book, Sugar List, a couple of weeks ago, and he gave a nice speech and he had said, you know, Nicole tells me that this is her last book, but I've heard that five times already. So I, I don't know how much I believe it. So we'll see. I, I do think, though, that I'm very proud of this book because it is in many ways a memoir of my research accomplishments and, and the stuff that we've discovered. And I think that for me, it's it's special and it really encompasses a lot of what we've been learning over the past 20 years about how food affects the brain, how processed food affects the brain and how it affects our health. And I think more than anything, we're seeing so many rapid changes in our food environment that it's really been hard to keep up. And so now I feel that we're at the point where we can, you know, take this information and bring it to the masses and hopefully people can use it to make some changes in their diet. I want to point out a couple things about your degrees, your PhDs are both in psychology and neuroscience. And I suspect those are very different tracks, not that they're not related and that they don't feed one another, but because I think they do. But back when I was in college, I had a major in computer science, physics, a major in math and a major in speech communications. So I had that hard science, soft science split. People call something like psychology. Usually they call it a soft science. Did you start out in psychology, move to neuroscience, or did they go forward at the same time? How did that happen? Back when I was doing my PhD, neuroscience was a really young field in the sense that it was a field that was usually housed in psychology departments at most universities or in the biology department at most universities. It wasn't really its own entity or its own field until some years after. So it was interesting. My program at Princeton, there were three different tracks that you could take. You could get a PhD in the psychology program, and it was either a PhD in psychology and neuroscience. And that meant that you were one of the neuroscience kids. So you were studying brains and, you know, playing with the lab animals and, you know, doing brain imaging studies. Or you could do social psychology track, which was focused on, you know, interactions among individuals, or you could do a cognitive psychology track, which, you know, has more to do with, you know, learning, memory, speech recognition, that kind of thing. So that's really how we were all broken up as students. And I just fell into the neuroscience track because I just found the brain to be so interesting. I was invited a few weeks ago to speak at my older daughter's high school. And I was asked to, you know, talk about my career. I <laughs> told the students, and I hadn't told anyone up until this point, but when I was a kid, I wanted to be an astronaut. I really thought that that would be such an interesting career and to do all this exploration and this unknown that was out there and learn about this stuff and discover things. And, you know, as time went on, I realized I'm not going to be an astronaut. I get motion sickness, you know, walking across the street. <laughs> You know, it just, it, I don't like airplanes, so I doubt I would like a rocket ship. And so it, it wasn't in the cards. And when I got to college and started taking some behavioral neuroscience classes and I learned about the brain, I realized this is my outer space. Like there's so much that we don't know about the brain. There's so much to learn and discover and, you know, explore. 
And so I was, I never made it to the moon, but um, I'm able to be exploring in many ways that, you know, the astronauts can, because we probably know more about outer space than we actually do about the brain. There's still so much to learn. Is it fair for me to estimate that your study, I mean, it seems to me like when dealing with addiction, which you talk about in Sugarless, some really important portions of it are talking about sugar addiction. That's on one side of the psychology, but so many of your studies are actually talking very heavily about the brain science. Yes. So overall, are you balanced in terms of those ingredients in your erudition, or is it concentrated to one side or another? I believe I have a pretty healthy balance of, you know, the psychological science, psychological theory. And I think that we need to be able to talk about those at the same time, because, you know, when we talk about addiction in particular, I mean, there's a biological component to addiction. You know, we can look at a brain and see when someone's addicted, you can, you know, see areas of the brain that are overactivated in response to stimuli that are associated with their substance that they're addicted to. But there's also this part that we can't see on a brain scan, right? There's this psychological component that you can't view, but it's still there. And I think we need to be able to understand that as well, because if people are going to make changes in their health and changes in the way they eat, they're going to have to utilize some of those psychological components to overcome some of these biological drives that are pushing us in certain directions. Before we go on, I want to comment about one more book. You said you've written five, and I know which ones those are, but you are also editor for a book called Animal Models of Eating Disorders. Where did that come in your development? Because that seems to me like your original experiments, uh, your research with respect to rats and so on, that was early on, and I think you added more components to the science after that. So was that an early book or is that later? That was an earlier book. We have done that book as an academic title, and that's really a collection of different chapters that had focused on the ways in which at the time we were using animal models to simulate what happens when humans have disordered eating behaviors. And so in the book, it really covers, you know, the gamut of disordered eating. And so it's your traditional eating disorders like bulimia nervosa and anorexia nervosa and the models that we have to study those. But it's also binge eating. It's also obesity. And, you know, some of these other aspects to disorder eating that we are able to use animal models to help us to better understand. I was born in 1954, and so I grew up with the dawning consciousness, particularly in the 60s, about how bad cigarettes, how bad tobacco is for people's health. But it was a long slog for the science to get there, in part because it depends on who's feeding your studies. And even though people could be very good scientists, your preference for which way you'd like it to go can affect you. You start out your book by mentioning how back in the 70s, 80s, that the big bugaboo was fat. We got to get the fat down because you've got all these cardiac issues and such that are developing from that. Could you say what you think was mistaken about that and why it, I think it maybe eclipsed or hid the science with respect to sugar? Well, I think that the media is partly to blame 
because when we break things down into these sound bites for the media so that they can communicate it to the public, we often lose the details and the devil is always in the details. And I think with the whole fat free revolution, what it boiled down to, or at least the message that people heard was fat is bad. Fat will give you a heart attack. That's going to cause cardiovascular problems. But the opposite side of that was, well, then carbs must be good, right? Because if fat's bad, then carbs must be good. And there were so many food products that supported that idea. If you remember back then, you know, you can go to the grocery store and the entire cookie aisle would be loaded with fat-free cookies. (laughs) And the thing about fat-free cookies is that they taste like cardboard because if you take the fat out, then you really lose a lot of the flavor. And so what the food companies ended up doing was putting more sugar in to compensate for that. So they might have been fat-free, but they were certainly not sugar-free. And what we ended up seeing happen over the years when you know this started to unravel is that it's not just the fat that was bad, it's actually the sugar too. And now, you know, there's plenty of research that suggests that sugar is just as bad for your cardiac health, if not worse than fat. So when we look at the research and we boil things down to these bite-sized bits of information, it comes at a cost because we get these sort of mantras of fat is bad, fat is bad, And that gets people, you know, to not really look elsewhere into, okay, well, if fat is bad, how do I know that sugar is any better? And it wasn't until years later when the study started to come out that we were able to see that. Just to be clear, you do share the concerns about too much fat in the diet, that that can lead to bad things. But it's a question about how you deal with that. And particularly, you don't want to bring in some other poison to displace the poison that you're removing. Maybe is that too strong a statement? No, that's exactly it. And, you know, I also think it's important that we don't demonize these large groups of ingredients or large components of our diet. So with that whole push to avoid fat, people were of the mindset that they should avoid omega-3 fatty acids because that's a fat. But we need omega-3 fatty acids to support our brain health. It's an essential part of making sure our brain functions correctly. You know, Our brain is comprised of a couple of things. It's comprised of neurons. It's comprised of blood vessels. It's also comprised of something called glia, which are essentially fat. And the fat is what insulates the neurons to make sure that the communication can occur. Just like any type of electrical circuit, you need to have an insulator to make sure that the signal is propagated. That's how our brain works. And so if we don't have fat, our brain won't work. And I think that, you know, breaking it down to fat's bad, fat's bad was a disservice because, you know, even to this day, I've encountered people who think that if they eat too many nuts or have too much fish, that it's bad because there's a lot of fat in there. But really, those are the fats that you want to be eating. Those are the fats that are good for your brain health and good for your heart health. Way back in 1980, I read Sugar Blues. I assume you read that somewhere along the way because it was part of what was handed to you in terms of study. And so right away, some people said, sugar's bad, sugar's bad, and they go to those extremes. Uh, How can we be sure that when we read a book like Sugarless, which includes the reference to the science, not just some jingoistic touting that sugar is bad, 
how can we be sure that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater in the same way we did with fat? It's a good point. And, you know, I think part of what I try to convey in sugar less is that it's the added sugar. It's not all sugar. It's the added sugar and it's the doses that we're consuming. You know, if you think back to Victorian times, we had sugar like maybe twice a year because it was so rare and it was a delicacy. And now we are inundated with sugar. Sugar's everywhere. It's so pervasive in our food culture. You know, I think that we do need to be careful to not just lump everything into the same category. When I talk about you reducing sugar, I'm talking about reducing the added sugar because it is so pervasive. It's hidden in so many of the foods that we eat. It's used to mask so many of the off-putting tastes that are in processed foods, like the preservatives and dyes and things like that. And so I'm not talking about apples and grapes and raspberries. You know, I'm not talking even about lactose. That's the sugar that naturally occurs in milk. I'm really talking about the added sugar that's put into our food supply by the food companies or by ourselves when we dump a bunch of sugar into our coffee and working to minimize that because that is what is detrimental to our health. It's not sugar per se. It's this over induction of added sugar that we've seen innervating our food supply. We're going to hit a lot more details of that very shortly, but I do want to remind all you Spirit and Action listeners that we are talking to Dr. Nicole Avena, Dr. Nicole Avena, D-R-N-I-C-O-L-E-A-V-E-N-A. But you didn't copy that down as quickly as I said it. So what you should do is come to northernspiritradio.org and follow the link to drnicolavena.com, where you can find all about her five books she's written, the other one she's edited, and you can find out about her latest book, particularly Sugarless. All of our guests from the past 18 and a half years for Spirit in Action are on our site. So you can look at, listen to, follow up, connect with all of those people doing healing work for the world. So please come via NordenSpiritRadio.org. Post a comment when you visit. Donate. That's how we do our income. We don't get paid by the university like Dr. Nicole Vena does. We depend upon you, the listeners, to support us. And one of the reasons we don't take money from corporations or government is because so often those things come with expectations and strings attached. We want to serve you, the listeners, and I have a sense that Nicole does exactly that. She wants to serve the listeners. She wants to serve science. She wants to serve a betterment of the world rather than any particular interest that she has to push. We're going to get into all of that detail, but remember, come to NordenSpiritRadio.org, check out the 35 or so stations nationwide that carry our programs, and please let us know that you're listening. Some of the other details from Sugarless that are very important to me, Nicole, are, first of all, you, you talk about we don't want added sugar. I happen to be one of these unfortunate people who, even if I don't have added sugar, can way overeat my sugars. I one time made a humongous fruit salad for myself, and I kept track of the calories I was putting in because there was like two bananas here, a can of pineapple, no sugar added, orange and this and that. And I sat down. It took me about an hour to eat the salad, but it was 3,500 calories. That's way too much, and that's a lot of sugar. So it's not only added sugar that can be a contributor, let's say, to obesity. And obesity is in itself a problem. 
however you get there with sugar or without. But somehow I think that gorillas don't seem to get obese and I think they eat mainly fruit, right? So talk to me a little bit more about sugar and what it means to us. I think we evolved with a need for sugar or a taste for sugar because it was in little supply and we had to work hard to get it. So when we tasted it, we wanted it right away. It's true. We evolved from hunters and gatherers who used to have to scour the forest for a berry bush. And when they found one, they would be very happy and they would eat the berries that were sweet because the sweet berries were the ones that were ripe. And that meant that they were safe. And, you know, the sour berries that were rotten and moldy, they were on the forest floor and they wouldn't be sweet. So you wouldn't eat those. And so we developed this pairing of sweet taste with safety and nourishment. And even when babies are born, you know, breast milk is the first thing that they taste and breast milk tastes sweet. And that's how babies are knowing to go back for more. And I think that part of the problem that we have today lies within the fact that we still have those hunter gatherer brains. We've evolved, but our brains have not really evolved all that much. What's happening is that when we encounter sweet taste, we have that desire to consume it, but it's no longer serving us. It's no longer good for us. It's no longer safety associated with it. And I think that's why we see so many people struggling to cut back on their sugar intake because we have this primitive desire to eat it that we now need to use our rational psychological components of our brain to tell us no, that it's actually not good for us. But you maintain it's not only that we like it or we like it a lot, that it's particularly addictive. Explain what addiction is, because you might say I'm addicted to drinking water because I would I would have withdrawal if I went without liquid, right? I mean, addiction is a different thing, though. Yes, addiction is very different. And, you know, we've been very careful over the years to qualify what we're measuring. Addiction to us and to the lab has been essentially the American Psychiatric Association's definition of addiction. And in their book, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the American Psychiatric Association lies out the criteria that need to be met in order for someone to be diagnosed as having a substance use disorder, which is also known as an addiction. There are a variety of different criteria that are listed. And if you meet some of those criteria, you could be diagnosed as having a mild addiction. If you meet a lot of those criteria, you could be diagnosed as having a severe addiction. So there's a spectrum that you can fall on when it comes to addiction. And what we've done in our studies is really just take those criteria and adapt them to see whether or not sugar could meet the criteria. That's really the premise of our research studies has been to test systematically whether or not these different criteria can be met when the substance of abuse is sugar or not drugs or alcohol. And I mentioned to listeners for Spirit in Action that that test that she's referring to, if you have these criteria that you'd be mildly addicted strong, that's in the book, Sugarless. So it's one of the things that you can do as part of reading the entire book. Check yourself out. Can you find where you lie on the spectrum of people? My wife believes she's addicted to sugar. She always has a problem with it. I don't believe I am. It's just the way I, I work a little bit differently. 
So what percentage of the population seems to tend towards strong addiction? Well, I think that much like with everything out there, we're going to find people at all different portions of the spectrum. The majority of people are probably at the mild to moderate phase of the addiction. And I think that it's good in some sense because we can hopefully help them before they, you know, find their way into, you know, the more extreme parts of the addiction spectrum. Individuals who are struggling with the extreme form of food addiction typically have had a a lot of problems regulating their food intake. And these are the types of individuals who often have to go to therapy, have to go inpatient places to help them to get hold of what's happening in terms of their diet. I think that the average American who is just struggling with trying to eat healthier, who maybe has, you know, some health issues, maybe has a couple of extra pounds that they know they need to lose is probably in that range of mild to moderate. And again, I think that that's promising because that means that, you know, you can make some changes before it gets even more difficult to make those changes. There's a range of problems that result from use of sugar or from overuse of sugar. One of them is just mood displacement, right? You can be exhaustion or depression or those kinds of things. You can also perhaps have cardiovascular issues. Diabetes, evidently. Does diabetes significantly get contributed to by heavy use of sugar? Does it seem to exhaust the portion of the body that produces the insulin and thereby regulate the sugar in our body? Yeah, I mean, a diet that's rich in added sugars is certainly not going to help diabetes. If anything, it's going to promote it. And I think that's what we're seeing more too often these days. This is why so many young children are being diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, because it is something that is so pervasive in part due to our food culture. You know, I always find that really interesting. I I think that one of the sort of red lights that we're in trouble from a public health standpoint should be when we start to see kids developing conditions that are supposed to only happen in adults. For the longest time, you probably remember, you know, it was adult onset diabetes which was type 2 diabetes. And then there was juvenile onset type diabetes, which is type 1 diabetes, which is not caused by eating too much sugar. It's caused by a failure of the pancreas to work correctly. And, you know, it was a rarity to see a kid with type 2 diabetes. I mean, that would have been an anomaly. Whereas nowadays, we're seeing young kids developing type 2 diabetes, five, six years old. And again, This is in part due to the diet, due to the types of foods that people are eating. And so I do think that we are seeing a significant shift in terms of the way in which we look at how diet can influence our health. And another example is fatty liver disease. It used to be that kids never had fatty liver disease. The only people that would get fatty liver disease were people who were alcoholics, And now we're seeing young children developing fatty liver disease because of sugar, because of what sugar is, and fructose in particular, is doing to the cells in our body and in our liver in particular, and causing fat deposits to occur. So it's interesting when we look at these conditions happening among young children, I think it's important to then reflect on, well, what's changed over that time? And it's really largely been changes in our nutrition and our diet and the types of foods that are available and offered. 
Is there a kind of suppression of information about this, research about this? I mentioned earlier that with respect to tobacco, there was a whole effort by the tobacco industry to keep people from realizing and actually to promote the opposite thing. Their doctors handed out cigarettes. to That's what you need to help you to breathe easier. And so it took a long time for this to become general knowledge. Is there suppression of information about the damage that sugar does, or is this just people don't like to think about things that are bad for them, and so they just don't think about it? I would say there's been some suppression of information happening. I mean, certainly, you know, I can recall several times in which we've published academic papers talking about sugar and the dangers of high fructose corn syrup. And, you know, we've had different organizations kind of balk back at that and say, oh, it's junk science. It was only done in rats, so it doesn't mean anything. And, you know, kind of try to naysay it and, and shed light on it in the way that it isn't all that important. But, you know, I think that much like with tobacco, the example that you gave, it's really a matter of, I think, aligning the research with the messaging. And you're always going to be able to find somebody, even to this day, I'm sure there's somebody that would go on record to say that tobacco is not bad for your health. I mean, if you look back at those old videos of doctors testifying in front of Congress that they didn't think, you know, tobacco was addictive and they didn't think it was harmful to your health. I mean, we see the same thing happening now with sugar, where, you know, there are people who are going to swear that it's not sugar, it's seed oil. It's, you know, some other demon that's out there that's causing us to be unhealthy and have all these health problems. So I really think that it's important to be open-minded when it comes to the messaging. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say that sugar is the cause of every single problem on earth. For sure, it's not. But is it a contributor to the majority of the health-related conditions that people are dealing with that are lifestyle-related? Absolutely. I would mention that you speak in a way that is, I think, both clear and I think it's reasonable in the book. You don't say people have to have zero particles of sugar in their diet. You don't say it's going to affect everyone to the same degree, because there are people for whom a little sugar will, could have serious consequences, and some people who can have gallons of it and walk away unscathed. Give us that proviso, because I think it's important that people know that you're not just an alarmist saying that the world's going to end because you ate sugar. Right. And, you know, I, I think that's an important message because we all know that you can't just stop eating all the sugar. I mean, people have tried to do that. It doesn't work. <laughs> so there's really no point in telling people to do that when it's not sustainable, I mean, it's like, you know, telling somebody to go run a mile in five minutes if they haven't run a step in the past 10 years. I mean, it, it's not going to happen. So I think that the better messaging and the better way to get people to make changes that are going to support their health is to talk about this in a way that's reasonable and applicable. It's about reducing the reliance on added sugars and replacing them with other things that can benefit our health. And it's not about this, you know, zero sum approach where you have to cut it out completely and have none of it, because I don't think that that's necessary. And, you know, if we look at history, we've lived with sugar peacefully to some degree, right, in our diet up until, you know, probably 70 years ago. 
And that's when things started to go awry. And that's when we started to see our food environment changing. So I think that people can live in harmony with sugar. But the problem is that the doses are different and the amount of sugar is different. The availability is different. And so that's why we need to approach it differently. Telling people that they have to have zero sugar is just setting them up for failure because there's sugar hidden in so many foods. I mean, it's like telling an alcoholic, you know, you can't have alcohol. Okay, I'm not going to go to the bars. I'm not going to go to these restaurants because they have liquor licenses. I'm not going to go over to these people's homes because they drink a lot of alcohol. They'll push it on me. It's easy to avoid to some degree. But can you imagine if there was alcohol in the piece of cake that you were eating and you didn't know it? Or, you know, there was alcohol in, you know, bottled water that you didn't know was there. I mean, so it's like that with sugar where it's innervating our diet and it sneaks into our diet. And so, you know, to expect people to avoid stuff that's hidden, it's like really unfair. And I don't think it's something that's sustainable or reasonable. You spend a fair amount of time, Nicole, in the book talking about hidden sugars, and you talk about the different names it goes under, and there's alternatives to it. I'm afraid you lost me when you said that things like maple syrup were not better, because I just, the last three years, have been producing maple syrup from the trees here. Again, I don't have a need to have sugar, so I don't feel addiction to it, but I love maple syrup. And it is a pure sugar in a way that what's in my fruit is not, right? So you mentioned some of the positive properties of honey. You know, honey can be antibacterial, etc. cetera. It, it can have some extra nutrients we don't get elsewhere. I'm pretty sure maple syrup's the same way. It's got some nutrients. So if you had to describe the different levels of hell, a pure white sugar additive is the deepest point in hell, perhaps. Where would you put honey, maple syrup, and the sugar alternatives that are out there in the world? And where would you put fruit? Does fruit just go into heaven? Yeah, you know, it's really interesting when people ask me to rank order these different sweeteners. So there's a couple of things to say about this. I think that the added sugar, the refined sugar does belong down in the depths of hell. <laughs> and I think that these other types of sweeteners, we have to think about what aspect of our health are we talking about? So if we're talking about the addiction piece, the alternative sweeteners, the maple syrup, the honey, they're all sweet. And it's the sweet taste that's driving the addiction in our brain. So your brain doesn't know that you're having maple syrup. Your brain knows that it's having sweet. And it doesn't know that it's having honey. It doesn't know that it's having, you know, monk fruit or stevia. It just knows that it's a sweet taste. And that's what's driving this addiction. So if the goal is to break that addiction and dependence on sugar, then I would say, it's important to reduce all of those sweeteners. And I think that many people have become so accustomed to having everything in their diet so sweet that they've almost lost sight of the fact that things don't have to be sweet. I mean, you see this if you go out to restaurants and you order, you know, a pasta dish or even, you know, a, a meat or something that has a, any type of sauce with it, the sauce is always sweet. There's always sugar added to those sauces. And coffee is another example. You can't really go to a coffee shop anymore, at least the chain coffee shops, 
and just get coffee. It's got to have, you know, all these different sweeteners and, you know, flavorings and it essentially becomes a dessert. (laughs) And so if the goal is to break the addiction, then you really need to break your dependence on sweet taste. Now, if the goal isn't necessarily addiction, maybe you fall into the camp of, you know, I want to reduce my sugar intake. I have control over it. I'm not addicted to the point where I feel like I can't. I just don't maybe know which way to do it or how to identify where the sugars are in my diet so I can make sure to eliminate them or reduce them. Then I think we can start to rank order some of these things. So, you know, honey and maple syrup that may have some medicinal properties to them, aside from, you know, just simply being a sweetener, I think would rank a little bit higher than added sugar. But I I think we need to be careful with the messaging. And again, I always go back to the messaging because of the whole fat-free revolution where everything got boiled down to, okay, fat's bad for you. We need to be careful because if we start to say, oh yeah, maple syrup's a better sugar, we don't want to give license to people just, you know, pouring gallons and gallons of maple syrup onto everything that they eat to substitute for added sugar, right? And so I think that's where we just need to be careful in that it may have properties that make it better than added sugar, but we still need to be consuming it in moderation. It doesn't give us a license to just use it liberally. You mentioned at the beginning, Nicole, that some people have a hard time reading the actual studies on which your conclusions are based. You're based on hardcore research. And some people would get lost if they were seeing the original research. I'm not one of those people. I can actually read that end of the spectrum as well. I've taught physics at college level and so on. So I'm used to thinking in very clear ways. I actually found myself a bit lost sometimes because people do react to sugar differently. Each individual reacts to it a little bit differently and different foods, different modes of conveying it. They all make a difference in terms of how it affects people. So as you talked about the effects, whether it's fatty liver disease or diabetes or any of the others, you mentioned the word that I think I saw you use most often was associated with. This is associated with this. And uh, those of us who are careful scientists know that correlation is not causation. And so what can you say that is compelling that is stronger than associated? Because associate doesn't associate just means, well, you see this, and you might see this in the same neighborhood. Yeah, I, you know, I think this is one of the challenges that we face in science is it's really difficult to say something is truly causal, right? Because there's so many other factors, especially when we're talking about human beings, because I can do my studies in laboratory rats who live in an isolated environment, who were born and reared just to be in that particular study. They've had no outside influence whatsoever. They're not affected by social media. They're not affected by their family history. And I can give them sugar and see that it is raising triglyceride levels. I can give them sugar and see that it's, you know, causing fatty liver disease. I can give them sugar and see that they're getting addictive. I can say in those situations that it seems like sugar's causing these things to occur. 
in my rats. But when we talk about humans, it gets a little bit more complicated because we're not living in the lab rat room. We're living in the world where we have all these other influences. And so to be able to say, you know, sugar is the definitive cause of X, Y, and Z, it's not something that we're going to see scientists do or medical doctors do because we know that there are so many other influences that are out there and other contributing factors that play a role in this. Thank you for that, Nicole. That's It's helpful. I'm aware that you were writing a book for non-scientists, and yet there was the scientist part of me which wanted more. Yeah. Is there a study that you can cite on humans, a widespread one, one that would have good indicators of applicability to the wider population that makes it very clear to our listeners. I mean, they can read in the book, right? But to our listeners here, that sugar is really not good for health in general in the population. There may be exceptions, individuals, right? But overall, it's bad for us. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in my book, Sugarless, I cite a lot of studies. I mean, you'll see if you if you like science, you're going to like this book, because although I write it for a general audience, I also have references in the back with all of the academic papers that were used as the basis for the conclusions that I draw. And so in various parts of the book, I talk about the clinical research that's been going on. Two studies that I'll call out just real quickly, because I think we're almost out of time. One comes out of Harvard University, Frank Yu, who is an epidemiologist. He did a study showing that sugar-sweetened beverages were invariably associated with increased risk for mortality and morbidity from cardiovascular disease. And so that was really one of the first studies to point at sugar and say, sugar is likely to give you cardiovascular disease and likely to cut your lifespan short. Another study that I'll call out is one that was conducted by a professor at University of Colorado. His name is Rick Johnson. And he did something called the Dr. Pepper study, which was a cute name for the study because he took humans and broke them into two groups. One group was given Dr. Pepper that was sweetened with sucrose Another group was given Dr. Pepper that was sweetened with high fructose corn syrup. And what he ended up finding was that there were significant differences between those two groups in terms of their liver enzymes. And what he was able to show essentially is that high fructose corn syrup, the fructose part in particular, seems to be what is causing fatty liver disease in humans. So again, you know, we do have, in my opinion, very convincing clinical studies. I mean, those are just the two that are the my favorites that I like to talk about. There are others that I talk about in the book that I think really do support this idea. And I think that it's still going on. I mean, the, the research is, is ongoing in this area. So I think over the years, we're going to continue to hear more and more about this as those findings come out. I am aware that our time is going to run out here pretty soon. Folks, we are speaking with Nicole Vina. Her website, drnicolavina.com, links on northernspiritradio.org. A very important part of this book, and it's the subtitle of the book. The book is Sugarless, and it says then, A Seven-Step Plan to Uncover Hidden Sugar, 
curb your cravings and conquer your addiction. Addiction plays a big part in this book. How you effectively do this makes a big difference. And one of the rich things that comes at the end of the book is all these recipes that you've put together. And it's clear from the commentary that you have in the book that you've tested them on your family. So when you say your daughter really likes this, this is what she wants. I, I love seeing that. I have made so far the chickpea avocado sandwich. I am planning, I've got the materials to put together over the next day or so, the coconut avocado lime soup. And my wife has been, she's been trying to avoid sugar for a long time. She does something that's almost parallel to your sugarless granola. So these recipes are really good. They're simple. They're real food, which I think that's one of the biggest things. Uh, If you've read The Omnivore's Dilemma, which I imagine you have, one of his later books, he says, eat food, mostly plants, not too much. That's his conclusion. Is that something you can buy into? Yeah, I think that those pieces of advice are valuable. And I think that's what we need. We, We do... I was sort of not a fan of the sound bites earlier on when we were having this discussion about, you know, how when we boil it down to these couple of words, people can only focus on that. But I think that when we really think about the healthiest way to eat and what we should be doing, we've gotten ourselves so confused and so disjointed about nutrition and what's healthy and what's not. But I I think that those words of advice are great. It's really about moderating our intake, not eating, you know, massive amounts of things just because we have them available and, you know, trying to incorporate more plants because plants are the fiber, regardless of how you feel about, you know, eating animals or not. Plants are a great way to mitigate your sugar cravings because you're going to get fiber from fruits and vegetables, and that's going to keep you feeling full longer. And it's really just a great way to make sure that you're not going to have those sugar crashes and you're not going to have those cravings that kind of come out of nowhere. Well, there's a lot more information in Sugarless by Dr. Nicola Vina. Website again, drnicolavina.com. There's so much more in the book. I hesitate to stop after just one hour of talking to you, Nicole. It's really wonderful to both talking to you. I love a scientist who also sees to the depths of human behavior. Bringing those two together really makes a big difference. Thank you so much for writing the book and joining us here today for Spirit in Action. Oh, thanks for having me. The link again to Dr. Nicole Vina is on my website, and we'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, we will move this world along, and our lives will feel the echo.